Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray, and today we're talking about sleep. How did you sleep last night? If you had anything other than eight uninterrupted hours of peaceful, restful sleep, then guess what? It's not that bad. It's pretty normal, actually. We recently asked five sleep researchers if everyone needs eight hours of sleep a night, and they all said no, you don't. You can read that story, by the way, on our site at theconversation.com. Just search for five experts and sleep. In fact, only about one quarter of us report getting eight or more hours of sleep a night. That's according to the huge annual Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia, or HILDA, survey which now tracks more than 17,500 people in 9,500 households. We'll hear more in a moment from Roger Wilkins, who runs the HILDA survey at the University of Melbourne, on what exactly the survey found about how much and how well Australians sleep. But first, I just want to hand you over to The Conversation's multimedia intern, Dilpreet Kaur. She spoke to sleep expert Melinda Jackson, a senior research fellow in the School of Health and Biomedical Sciences at RMIT University, about what the evidence shows about how we used to sleep in pre-industrial times, how we're sleeping now, and what promising research might be on the horizon. Here's Dilpreet. I may be 23, but my sleep pattern is like a four-year-old's. Twisting and turning at three in the morning, wanting snacks for no reason, or just lying in bed contemplating if I should go pee. This is all pretty normal for me at night. Sometimes I'll have trouble getting off to sleep. Other times I'll fall asleep okay, but then wake in the night and lie there until dawn starts creeping up on me. I needed answers, so I went to Dr. Melinda Jackson, a sleep researcher at RMIT University. But what she told me made me wonder if my sleep was all that abnormal after all. In an article she wrote for The Conversation, titled, Did We Used to Have Two Sleeps Rather Than One? Should We Again? Dr. Jackson said sleeping through the night is a relatively recent convention, and that once a completely different time of sleep pattern was the norm. I guess this was more in the pre-industrial time, you know, before the invention of the light bulb. So, you know, in the evening it was fairly dark and um, people would tend to retire um, to bed um, a couple of hours after dusk and they would sleep for a few hours and then they would wake up in the middle of the night um, and for perhaps one, two hours and then they'd go back to sleep or back to bed um, and sleep through until dawn. So they were still getting the same amount of sleep across 24 hours as we do today, but um, they were just splitting it differently. You know, we, we have a consolidated eight-hour period. They were perhaps having, you know, two four-hour blocks across the night. Can you tell me the evidence about that? Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence throughout history um, and anthropologists have sort of really looked into this question about split sleep. Throughout history, there's numerous accounts of this segmented sleep patterning. So um, medical medical texts, in court records, um, in people's diaries, it was, you know, sort of reports of this. 
Um, and in fact, in Charles Dickens' novel, which was um, published in 1840, Barnaby Rudge, it's called, um, he actually referred to first sleep and second sleep. So he talks about the horror with which he started from his first sleep. So there's evidence of this throughout that sort of pre-industrial time. But even in um, South American and African tribes, there's some evidence of this type of sleeping as well. So not just in Western cultures, but in more um, of these uh, tribal cultures as well. And there's a concept you should really be familiar with. It's one in the morning. I'm watching Netflix when I should be sleeping. But that's just what I do when I wake in the middle of the night. But what did other people do in pre-industrial times? Um, there's a little bit of evidence in the, in diaries and, and in texts about what people would do. but um, So they might engage in activities like sewing or chopping wood by the moonlight. Um, they'd perhaps use oil lamps so they could see what they were doing. Um, they often would socialise. They would either wake up their bed partner or perhaps go to their neighbour's house and socialise. Um, and it was around this time that there was this strong belief in the supernatural um, and that, you know, there was a bit of fear around that sickness would occur mostly at night. So it's possible that, you know, being awake for a few hours during the night sort of made them felt feel more at ease that these things weren't going to happen or they weren't going to be attacked by ghosts. or um, And so that made them sort of feel less vulnerable. So perhaps that was a reason for this um, type of behaviour. So how long did this um, kind of concept live for? So um, this type of sleep, as I mentioned, was in the pre-industrial time. And there's a historian, um, Robert Urchurch, um, he found references to this first and second sleep started to disappear in the late 17th century. And um, it was thought to have started in the upper northern Europe and filtered down to the rest of Western society over the following 200 years. Um, it's interesting that around this time that there was, became more references to this concept of sleep maintenance insomnia um, in the literature, which indicates that perhaps um, insomnia may have evolved from people putting too much pressure on themselves to have a consolidated night of sleep when they may have been better suited to the segmented sleep that their ancestors you know, used to, to have. So why did it change? So I suspect that it changed um, with the invention of the light bulb and during this industrial period, um, in society, there was a lot more going on. Um, perhaps people's behaviours were changing because um, there was lighting in that evening period when perhaps previously they were in only dim light with oil lamps. And so they didn't feel the need to go to sleep earlier. So they were going to bed later and perhaps then having more of a consolidated period of sleep. All right. So are we biologically wired to have two sleeps within a wake period in the middle of the night? It's a really interesting question and, you know, typically in today's society we don't see this type of, of sleep pattern. However, there is some evidence from some research studies that show that perhaps there is a biological basis to this. So um, in the early 1990s, um, there was a psychiatrist called Thomas Wurr who conducted experiments um, where he put healthy people into a laboratory that was 
really time controlled. That is, um, it was like they were living in a cave in a sense. There were no time cues. There was no clocks, no windows, um, no TV or radio. So they didn't have any idea of what time it was outside in the outside world. And what he did was he put them on a shorter photo period, which means that he um, had a longer period of darkness. So they, he had 14 hours of darkness every day compared to the eight hours of darkness that we typically experience in our modern society. And people lived in this environment for a month. And it took a few weeks for them to kind of stabilise their sleep patterns. But what he found was by the fourth week that people had actually settled into a very distinct sleep pattern They slept first for about four hours and then they would wake up and they'd be up for one or two hours and then they'd go back to sleep again for another four hours. So it was actually really reflective of what we hear about these segmented sleep patterns in this pre-industrial time. So this research is really exciting, really interesting, kind of suggests that there may be a biological basis to this segmented sleep pattern. But obviously in today's society, we haven't really taken up this type of, uh, of sleeping arrangement. It's 3 a.m. Um, I woke up about an hour ago and I can't get back to sleep. I have to work, I have to study tomorrow, I have an internship at The Conversation, I have to work on a podcast episode about sleep, I have to reply to my email, I have to Skype with my parents, I have to see my sister's new house, and I just can't sleep. You know, there is a high rate of of sleep maintenance insomnia and and clinical insomnia in in our society. So around 30% of the population will have some insomnia symptoms and around 10% of the population actually have clinical insomnia. So this might actually be a reflection of, um, you know, perhaps this subgroup of people who aren't really coping with the, you know, or our, you know, modern way of sleeping and perhaps a more traditional approach um, to their their sleep-wake patterns may be better for them. In today's society, it doesn't really allow for this type of arrangement. Yeah, it would be creepy to knock on your neighbour's door at one in the morning today. (laughs) (laughs) So is there any research evidence that might help explain why some people lie awake at 3 a.m. stressing about things, things that by the time morning comes don't seem so bad anymore? I guess when our mums tell us, you know, um, if you've had a bad day, just go to bed and sleep on it and you'll feel better the next the next morning. She might have been on to something um, because we do feel a lot better um, after a good night of sleep. Um, often we can... Um, come up with solutions to problems that we might have gone to bed with. So it's thought that REM sleep or that dreaming stage of sleep is really important and it's almost considered a soothing balm, as neuroscientist Professor Matt Walker would call it, um, or overnight therapy in a sense. So this stage of sleep, the dreaming stage of sleep, is thought to be a very therapeutic stage. And one theory is is that this stage of sleep allows us to uncouple emotional content of memories that we've experienced during the day from the declarative kind of factual component of that memory. 
And so we're able to better sort of look at that and, and bear the the um the brunt, I guess, of these these emotional memories that we experience. So that's one idea about how sleep and particular dreams might help us to cope with events that have happened during the day and um, regulate our emotions. I guess on the flip side of that, if we sleep deprive people, and there's been studies where they will sleep deprive people and put them in an MRI scanner, and they find that the amygdala region of the brain, that that area that's associated with fear and anger actually amplifies its activity. It increases activity by about 60% when people are sleep deprived. So it's really showing that lack of sleep can uh, really affect the way that we process emotions um, and how we um, behave emotionally the next day. And we see that in children that a lack of sleep has been linked to aggression and bullying And in adolescence, um, it's been linked to suicidal thoughts. So sleep is really, really important for regulating our emotions and allowing us to cope with day-to-day emotional events and experiences. How has treatment for sleep disorders changed over time? What did we used to do that we never do now? And what promising research is on this horizon? So I guess I'd probably talk mostly about insomnia. And um, I guess traditionally... Uh, insomnia wasn't really thought about as its own entity. You know, it was always um, a result of something else, either stress or mental illness. Uh, And so it was kind of treated differently. And only more recently have we recognised insomnia as its own condition and can treat it as its own condition. Um, And in fact, when you do treat insomnia, it can actually help to alleviate some of those other comorbid conditions. One of the more recent um, uh, treatments for insomnia is cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. Even more recently, we're looking into different therapies such as mindfulness and combining these two types of therapies um, to try and have an additional effect on patients with insomnia to help them either get off to sleep or to be able to maintain their sleep throughout the night. Close your eyes. Soften your forehead. And let there be a soft smile in the corners of your lips. Now take a few long, deep breaths to relax the mind and body. Yeah, um, I have this app called Calm and it has this wonderful music and it has this this lovely lady <laughs> who tells me to like lie on your back and just take a deep breath and like that actually helps me like sleep. Otherwise, I am such a horrible person when it comes to sleep. I would lie awake like till 4am and then dread my life at 8am the next morning. So yeah, I guess it's it's becoming so normal that people need help with sleep, that there are like phone apps now. That's right. And so we're looking more into online therapies and um, phone apps, more of that sort of self-directed um, help and therapy, um, which people sort of uptake a little bit more readily. Um, because, you know, seeing a psychologist can be time consuming and difficult to make appointments and um, expensive as well sometimes. So, you know, these types of therapies can be beneficial. We're not really sure of the therapeutic benefits of online and apps, but we're really looking into it because it's important and more and more people are, are turning to these options for therapy. Yeah. I mean, 
at 3 a.m. in the morning, who's going to help you? It's, it's you and your phone. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I asked Dr. Jackson if she thought it would ever be possible in today's world to go back to the double sleep pattern of pre-industrial times. After writing the piece in the conversation, we were actually contacted by quite a few people um, who have told us that they actually adopt a segmented sleep pattern in their day-to-day life now. And it's not due to their work schedule or anything like that. Um, It's just because they feel that they function better if they split their sleep across these two periods. So for some people, they are really recognising the benefits if they're willing to give it a try. And of course, if their work and social and, you know, uh, lives allow for that type of schedule. But for most of us, um, we're constrained by our work hours, our family life. Um, you know, there's all, not a lot to do in the middle of the night if everyone else is asleep in the household. So... Um, while it might be beneficial for a small proportion of, of people today, um, it's very difficult to adopt. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Melinda. No problem. Thanks for having me. And now, from the science of sleep to the economics of sleeplessness. I told you at the start about the annual Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia, or HILDA survey, which tells the story of the same group of Australians over the course of their lives. It's been going since 2001, and it now tracks more than 17,500 people in 9,500 households, asking about their economic well-being, their health and their family life. A few years ago, the people who do the survey decided to ask respondents a range of questions about the amount of sleep they're getting and the quality of their sleep. Roger Wilkins, who runs the HILDA survey, is a professor at the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne. He sat down with our multimedia intern, Dilpreet Kaur, to talk about what the survey found. About one in six people aged 15 and over report getting less than six hours of sleep per night on average, and that's generally regarded as as an unhealthy, is is unhealthy in the long term. So that suggests that uh, uh, lack of sleep is in fact a, uh, a significant issue for, for many people in the community. Poor sleep quality also seems to be quite widespread. So over 40% of people aged 15 and over report having very bad or fairly bad sleep quality. So this is where you have problems such as waking a lot during the night or inability to get to sleep, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so it is does seem to be, at least based on people's uh, perceptions and what they report, to be a, you know, a significant issue for, for many people. What I found surprising among the findings was that only about one quarter of us report getting eight or more hours of sleep. Another thing that surprised me was that older people, people over 65, actually were less likely to report having poor sleep. They uh, reported having more sleep and having better quality sleep than younger people, which I wasn't expecting. Did the survey reveal anything about how men sleep on average versus how women sleep? Uh, they actually have quite similar patterns. So the the proportion getting too little sleep and the proportion getting what sleep researchers might regard as too much sleep are quite similar for men and women in most age groups. Right. And were there any differences between people who are employed and people who are unemployed? Any difference in their sleep patterns? Yeah, so the relationship between sleep and employment is actually quite a complex one. If you are a 
part-time employed person, then it's likely you would actually average more hours of sleep per night than a non-employed person of the same age. Amongst those who are employed, uh, there are significant differences uh, in the amount of sleep that people get depending on their occupation. So for example, uh, laborers and uh, and machine operators and drivers, uh, they tend to get less sleep than people in other occupations. And that seems to be connected to the fact that they tend to get up earlier. uh, And so they're not adequately compensating for that by getting to bed uh, sufficiently early. It's quite a complicated relationship between employment and the amount of sleep people report getting. So what were the main factors that were associated with sleep quality and sleep quantity? One thing that came out very strongly was that people with young children reported both less sleep and lower quality sleep than other people, particularly mothers of of young children. I don't think that finding would be particularly uh, surprising to parents of of young children uh, or to people who have been parents of young children. Independently of that, though, single parents also report getting less sleep. And I think that's probably connected to the fact that they have, uh, they're carrying the burden of care of the children on their own. And so there's no ability to kind of work in shifts with your partner if you're the the sole carer. As I mentioned, uh, working long hours is associated with uh, less sleep and also lower quality of sleep. People in poorer health, whether we're talking about general health or their mental health, they report lower levels of sleep and lower quality of sleep and also obese people. So people with a body mass index of over 30, they report both less sleep and lower quality of sleep. So why did you want to include sleep in the survey? HILDA is a quite a broad ranging study and, and very integral to it is the study of people's health and well-being. And uh, sleep was something that we hadn't covered until 2013, even though it is quite an important component or of people's well-being. So it's a good indicator of well-being, but it's also an important potential contributor to people's health and, and well-being. And it can also have important implications for other domains of people's lives. So the, the quality of their relationships, uh, their employment, uh, their success in the labor market, uh, and so on. So we um, certainly uh, saw this as an important gap to fill in 2013 in terms of getting a a more complete picture of people's health and well-being. So sleep is one of those topics that we don't collect every year, but we do collect it every four years, um, starting in 2013. So we last collected it in 2017. We haven't as yet compiled the data for 2017, and so uh, we haven't done analysis of that subsequent data. But certainly next year, we should be seeing some uh, analysis of that data and looking at, for example, how persistent poor sleep quality is over time or inadequate sleep or excessive sleep. And lastly, Roger, how well do you sleep? Uh, not as well as I'd like. I probably average around the seven hours uh, per night, but uh, I would definitely like to get a bit more and a bit better quality sleep than I do. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Dilpreet Kaur, who recorded and edited those two segments you heard and to Roger Wilkins and Melinda Jackson for making time to speak to us. You can read Dr Jackson's article, Did We Used to Have Two Sleeps Rather Than One? Should We Again? on our website at theconversation.com and listen to a whole episode of Trust Me, I'm an Expert, all about the Hilda survey, wherever you find your podcasts. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this podcast from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com. And while you're there, go and check out our other podcasts, like Media Files. Presented by leading journalism academics, Andrew Dodd, Matthew Ricketson and Andrea Carson. It's all about how the media is doing its job and if we're getting it right. Media Files and Trust Me I'm an Expert are out every month. Find us and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts and rate and review us while you're there. Chat to you next month.